Amen. Amen. Well, great to see you this morning. Thanks to uh, everyone who's made it possible for us to gather here today in-house and online. I'm excited by this new camera at the back there. I can imagine there'll be several people who'll be uh, interested in becoming the camera person. So, uh, I'm just back from the old country. Everybody seems to be fine. Um, I, think, uh, I think it's good to travel from time to time and to remind ourselves of um, what it is that God has done in our life and the ways in which he has worked. We were privileged to be able to go to some old stomping grounds and see some places of revival where we saw the Lord do great things. And uh, it was a special time for us. So thank you, all of those of you who encouraged us on our way and um, prayed for us whilst we were there. As you can see, I'm becoming more and more mobile. I feel like I really want two of these boots now. I think that they're quite a fashion statement myself, personally. I think it, it could catch on. I think there's a young man at the front there who's uh, got one as well. And, uh, you know, I think it might just be a spreading thing. So today we're going to look at what it is that Paul said of his testimony. One of the interesting things about the Acts of the Apostles, as Luke relays to us the story of the early church, and then principally the testimony of the life of the Apostle Paul, is that the story of his conversion occurs three times in the text of the Acts of the Apostles. There is the chronological event that takes place in Acts chapter 9, and then Paul relates his own testimony on two occasions, one before the crowd of Jewish people who, as we've heard already today, were seeking his life to kill him right there and then, uh, simply because of what it was that they'd heard that he was up to in bringing the good news to the Gentiles. And then uh, Paul's testimony before the great and good when he's incarcerated in Caesarea. And we'll look at that in just a few weeks' time. And you may wonder why it is that we have this story three times. Well, the reason we have things three times in the Bible is to establish it as the principal issue. God says this, if you want something to be established, it's established by two or three witnesses. This is a biblical truth. This is a biblical foundation. So if you're looking for a way to, to validate a testimony, then you look for two or three witnesses. If you're looking for a way in which a truth is going to be established, you look for two or three ways in which that truth can be articulated. If you're looking for a way to commit your life to a particular course of action in seeking God to do something in your life, then you ask him three times. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane knelt and prayed three times. Paul, when he was seeking the solution for the thorn in his flesh, asked the Lord three times. This is a foundational principle. We're seeing something here in the Acts of the Apostles that tells us that this is what it's all about. 
The story of the early church is about the encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. Aaron has already pointed out to us so helpfully that it's not about what you know about God. It's an issue of whether you know him personally or not. The story of the early church is the story of people who encountered Jesus, met him in their lives, he changed them fundamentally, and on the basis of that transformation, they then shared their testimony with the world. Here in this passage, we'll see that, and when we get to verse 15 of Acts 22, we'll see the very heart of what it is that Paul is being called to. So join me in Acts chapter 22 and verse 1. Paul is standing before the crowd who moments before were seeking his life. And he speaks with respect. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city under Gamaliel. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as also the high priest and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I said. Get up, the Lord said, and go to Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear the words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking quick. He said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and to beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away 
to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. So here we have from the very lips of Paul the story of his conversion. And it's the story of him taking a different position within the court of human reckoning. There is a court of human reckoning where God is the judge. And in that court, you are called to play a different role. The role that Paul believed that he had within the court of human reckoning was as a lawyer. He had been trained from the early years of his youth at the feet of Gamaliel, the greatest living rabbi at the time. And his task as a boy was to grow to become a man who was so proficient, who was so skilled in the understanding of the divine law that he could function as God's advocate, that he could function as the lawyer in the court of the human assize. God's court was a court in which he had raised up particular individuals to be trained in the excellence of the law. And in that excellence, they would conduct proceedings and bring the pronouncement of guilt to all who were gathered there. This lawyer that Paul had been raised to be was the prosecuting counsel in this court of divine law. And that's what he assumed was his task. He'd spoken to the high priest and to the council, and they sent him to prosecute the will of the high priest and the council. And so he was literally functioning in that role as he sped his way towards Damascus. And then Jesus met him and changed his life from being a lawyer to being a witness. Doesn't have quite the kudos. Doesn't quite have the status. But it's incredibly more important. In the court of human reckoning, where God sits as judge, God is looking not for a lawyer. He doesn't need anyone to explain his law to him. He doesn't need a counsel for the defense. He sent his son to be the counsel for our defense, declaring not guilty. He's looking for a witness. And what will a witness provide in this court of human reckoning? The witness will simply say what they've seen and heard. Your task, your assignment, says the Lord to Paul, your assignment is to tell the world what you've seen and heard. 
That's your task. It's, of course, the apostolic task, the task of all of the disciples of Jesus. Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem, at the very beginning of the Acts of the Apostles. Wait in Jerusalem until you have been endued with the power of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Your task is to be a witness. John, one of the, one of the last living apostles, writes in his first letter, he says, my task is simply to tell you what I've seen and what I've heard. So if this is the task of the apostles, this is the task of the early church, and this is the counsel of Scripture, then of course, it's our task as well. God's not looking for an advocate. God's not looking for a lawyer. God's not looking for counsels of prosecution or defense. He can do all of that himself. He's simply looking for a witness. And witnesses simply say what they've seen and heard. So perhaps we should dig a little deeper into what it means to be a witness of what we've seen and heard. And of course, when we do that, we discover this, this idea, this, this approach, this behavior has a long and illustrious history. Join me as we look at the history of what it means to see and hear. If you go back to Genesis, you see that the one who actually gives us the understanding of what it is to see and hear is the Lord himself. Abraham and Sarah are waiting for the fulfillment of the promise that God has made to them years before. The fulfillment of the promise, of course, is that they will have a son, and that son will be the first of many who will become a great nation, the chosen people of the living God. Abraham and Sarah become frustrated in waiting. The years stretch on, and it seems an impossibility that either of them will be able to provide the child that God has promised. And so they come up with their own solution. A common solution at the time, surrogacy, was not something that Abraham and Sarah had come up with. It was something that was quite common at the time. And so the servant of Sarah was co-opted by Sarah and by Abraham to provide a child for the household. She becomes pregnant with Abraham's son, with Abraham's child. She becomes haughty and arrogant. She becomes prideful in the presence of her mistress, Sarah. And Sarah goes to Abraham with her complaint, saying, this is all your fault. Now I've got the double ignominy of being infertile and 
put down by my servant. Abraham does a thing that you see the men in the Bible do regularly, and you see men do regularly to this day. He kind of says, you deal with it. It's, it's too complicated and emotional. I think there's too much drama. I, I think there's just, I, I'm not good at this stuff. You deal with it. So Sarah kicks Hagar out. And Hagar is failing. She's in a desert land after all. She has no food. She has no means of sustenance. And as she collapses in that desert land, an angel is sent to her from the Lord. Genesis chapter 16, verse seven. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave him this name. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. Hagar is in the desert. She's in a desperate situation. The angel of the Lord comes to her and says, You've been heard, Hagar. You've so been heard that the child within you, when he is born, will be called the Lord hears. You've been seen, Hagar. The Lord has seen your plight. He's seen the conditions of your slavery. He's seen the conditions of your abuse. He's seen the conditions of your alienation and marginalization. He's seen your life. Now go back and trust in me. And because she knows that she's heard and seen, she names the well, the living well of the one who sees. So it is the Lord who is the first example of what it means to see and hear. He sees and hears Hagar in her distress and in her difficulty. And of course, He's offering himself as the model, as the example to us so that we can learn 
what it means to see and hear. Do you see and hear the people around you? Do you see and hear the people who disagree with you? Do you see and hear the people who are of a different culture, a different color, a different background? Do you see them? Do you hear them? Or are some people invisible to you? Are some people silent to you? Would you prefer not to see? Would you prefer not to, to hear? What about people of a different political persuasion? What about people who have a different religious background? What about people who disagree with you being a Christian? Do you see them? Do you hear them? When you see them, do you see something that causes compassion to rise in your heart? When you hear them, is there something that causes you to want to reach out to them? You see, the disposition of the Lord is the means by which he sees and hears. The posture of the Lord is the means by which he's able to lean in and hear and see. The posture of love towards the other is the first step in learning how to see and hear. And the Lord is our great example. When Moses is by the burning bush and he says, I'm going to go over and have a look at this. It's not being consumed. He's seen fires in the desert before. It's a common sight. But the, the, the flames are not consuming the bush. And so he wants to go near and he hears the angel of the Lord telling him that this is holy ground, that, that he needs to take his sandals off. And so he does and, and is brought into a place of worship. And this is what the Lord says to him. I have seen my people and I've heard their cry. I've seen their misery and I've heard their cry. How many unseen, unheard people down through the centuries have read those words and found their heart leaping? How many people on the plantations of this nation read those words and heard them? their own heard them as their own I see you I hear you well we know don't we because the songs of those people still redound to the praises of God. 
It's God who teaches us how to see and hear. Jesus, in John's Gospel, reveals to us how in human form God can take this education further. He says to those who are listening, he says, I only, I only do what I see the Father doing. John 5, 19. I only do what I see the Father doing. Not because he's endued with some mystical vision that is his because he's the Son of God. No, but because as the Son of Man, as one who is here fully human, he attends to the world around him in such a way that his attention is caught in certain circumstances and on certain occasions and he sees what his father is doing. The woman at the well. It's the middle of the day. No one comes for water in the middle of the day. Maybe that in his humanity caught his attention. Why would she be here in the middle of the day? Wearied as he was, he sits by the well, asks the woman for water. Jesus is no respecter of persons, high or low. He's not interested in the social indexes of the day. He knows that this woman is considered by everyone to be beneath him. And of course, he's already assuming that there's something going on in this person's life that causes them to need to shy away from the crowds. And so, undoubtedly, without any supernatural knowledge, he will, of course, recognize that everyone else, him being a man, him being a Jew, her being a woman and a Samaritan, everyone else in the world would be shocked that he would deign to speak to her, still less ask for her help. And in the conversation, she knew that she was seen. She knew that she was heard. And in her desperate, alienated state, Jesus sends her as the first missionary to her people. Go and tell them. The woman thrust naked into the ring of lawyers, each of them hefting a rock in their hand, ready to do the bidding of the law. Caught in the act of adultery. Dragged before Jesus. Jesus kneels in the sand, begins to write on the ground. No one knows what it was that he was writing. Maybe he was writing the sins of each of the people that had come to condemn the woman. 
We don't know. But he was showing that his attention was in another place other than the one that the crowd wanted him to focus on. His attention was on what the Father was doing. The Father was about rescue. The Father was about redemption. The Father was about bringing this woman to a place of new life. And when he said, those of you who have never sinned, you you cast the first stone. It would be the oldest person that would normally cast the first stone, and it was the oldest who led the crowd away. And then when he's alone, and the woman is still kneeling there in her sadness and shame, he just asks her a question that reveals to her that she is seen not as an object, not as a sinner, but as a person that God loves. Does no one condemn you? Nobody? Not one of the lawyers wants to present their case? Well, I'm here as your counsel for defense. Go and sin no more. Mary Magdalene, by the tomb, we heard about it, didn't we, just a couple of weeks ago. She doesn't see Jesus. She thinks he's a gardener. She's overwhelmed by the moment. She's, she's taken up in the circumstance. This is, a, this is a little warning, a little lesson for us. Why is it that we don't see people? Why is it that we don't hear people? Because the circumstances overwhelm. The war in Ukraine, the trouble in our nation, the economy, the difficulties that we face in our family, the struggles that we have at home, the challenges that we face daily at work, all of these are sweeping away our capacity to see and hear. Mary is asked on a number of occasions, why are you weeping? The angels say, why are you weeping? The, the Lord himself says, why are you weeping? There's a, there's a question here that says, to Mary, your reaction is understandable, but it's not going to help you see. So when it subsides, maybe then you'll see. But of course, it's when Jesus calls her name that everything changes. Because when Jesus calls her name, She knows that she's seen. She knows that she's heard. And amazingly, she sees Jesus for the first time. 
you and I are called to be witnesses. We're called to be witnesses of the life that we have with Jesus. The Jesus that we know because he's made it possible for us to know him by removing all of the obstacles of sin and death from our lives. Jesus having paid the penalty, removing the the declaration of the law, nailing it to the cross with him, overcoming our enemies, has given us the freedom to know him and to find a way to the Father. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus has given us that opportunity, and he wants us simply to be witnesses, to say what we see, to say what we hear, to share it with the world. It's a living, dynamic reality. It's great that you were converted 20, 30, 40 years ago. How has the conversion been going this week? How's the conversion been going? Any changes? Any developments? Anything to report? Or is it just a war story from the past? What's Jesus up to? What is he doing? Where have you encountered him this week? How have you heard him this week? What has he said to you? What has he done? What do you see? What do you hear? Friends, you and I called as witnesses are called to see and hear. And we learn by making it part of our daily practice to see and to hear. Just been in England, spent a long time with Sally, my wife. She said to me, you know, I think it's really important that I, I come back regularly to England. I said, okay, good, yeah, good. She said, you know, you don't have to come every time. I said, good. <laughs> but I think it's really important that I come kind of regularly. I said, oh, yeah, good, yeah. She said, I, I feel like it's a calling. I went, okay. So the little alarm bells are beginning to ring the referee of peace, as Paul calls it in Colossians 3.15. I can hear the whistle blowing. The referee saying, stop the game. Pay attention. She says, I, I've been kind of wrestling with this call for a while now. I said, okay. And what, what is that? And as I listened, and as I watched, it was clear to me that two things were happening in the heart of Sally. The first was that she was still recovering from 
so much trauma that we faced together as we battled in the midst of the kingdom struggle over the years. And the place that she found the greatest relief for her soul was her family home. It was the place of greatest retreat for her. And why would I say no to that? And secondly, she was saying that with all of the missionary work that we've done in so many places, the voice of the lost ones in her family rang in her heart. It was very easy for me to just to be a husband, which is, you know, that's coterminous for idiot. <laughs> and just kind of ignoring, yeah, yeah, good, yeah. But actually, Jesus wanted me to see and to hear. Of course, this is important. Begin learning how to see and hear with the people who are closest to you. Do you see them? Do you hear them? And when you see them and hear them, what's God doing? What's God saying? Share that testimony. And in that living, dynamic testimony, so many people will hear not an old, old story, which of course is enormously important because it means the current story is possible, but they'll hear something that connects with them today, right now. As you think about how to respond this morning. Think about Paul. He had scales over his eyes. And the Lord had to deliver him so that he could attend to what it was that God was going to do in his life. He needed to have his ears opened. And the truth is, that this is an event and a process. And it may be that you've experienced that event of personal transformation, of course. But perhaps today is a day when you say, Lord, I want to be better at this. I want you to train me to see and to hear. I want you to teach me to see and to hear and to say what it is that you're doing. Lord, teach me. And in that humble confession, the Lord, of course, will answer and will reveal more of himself to you this week. So as the worship team comes and they play for us this final 
song in our time of worship, my encouragement to you is, if you know that you need to grow in seeing and hearing, that you might be a more effective witness, then you come. And here's the interesting thing. When the, when the prayer team recruit folks from the congregation to pray with you, some amazing things might happen. A young man came up just a few weeks ago. I prayed with him and I just shared with him something that I sensed God was saying. And he came and found me afterwards and said, I've never considered that as something that Jesus might want to say to me personally. So you come. Lord, help us to see and to hear you. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you've changed our lives and that in the past we have the story of our conversion. But Lord, we pray that conversion would continue today, this week. Bring transformation, Lord, to our lives as we see and hear the people around us and we see and hear what it is that you're doing. And Lord, give us the freedom and the boldness to say what we see and hear. And we pray it in the good and in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people say, Amen.